Programmers are in high demand, and software engineering is a career path that is fun, creative, and lucrative. There are many people who want to transition into a career in software, and they're looking for the right path toward writing code. The traditional college computer science curriculum teaches some software engineering skills, but the time and the financial cost of attending a university is prohibitive for many people who want to learn to code. Over the past decade, there have been several new models for software education. Online video platforms such as Udacity and Coursera put computer science courses online to be watched at the viewer's convenience. Online schools such as Free Code Camp allow someone to learn how to program without any experience and with no financial payment. Boot camps with income sharing agreements such as App Academy create an in-person education environment that mimics a university, but with better cost structure and incentive alignment. Lambda School is an education system that takes elements of other software education models and combines them with newer SaaS technologies, such as Slack and Zoom video conferencing. Lambda School is an online software engineering curriculum with an income sharing agreement. Income sharing agreements mean that the student does not pay for their education until they get a job. With this model, the student can pay back Lambda School after their software engineering education gets them a high-paying software job. Andrew Madsen works at Lambda School, and he joins the show to describe the path that a student takes through Lambda School, the school's curriculum for software education, and how Lambda School differs from the other options for coding education. If you want to find all the episodes of Software Engineering Daily, check out the Software Daily app for iOS. It includes all 1,000 of our old episodes. There's also related links and greatest hits and topics. You can read and explore the content of Software Engineering Daily, and you can comment on episodes. You can find other members of the community with shared interests. And if you don't like the ads, you can become a paid subscriber. You can listen to ad-free episodes by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash subscribe. Thanks to Altology for helping us build out this version of the app, although everything is open source. Altology is a great company that does contracting. They do software, mobile, and web development. And I recommend checking them out if you're looking for a great contracting team. With that, let's get on to today's show. Andrew Madsen, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me, Jeff. You work at Lambda School, and in order to talk about Lambda School, we first need to talk about the education system. What are the biggest problems with the education system? I think there are a number of problems, but you know, one that we think about a lot is really the financial problems in the educational system, which is that we have people going to school, in some cases going into tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, and then finding that the economic value that they got from, you know, going to university doesn't actually make up for the the debt they're under. And that, you know, that debt is, in some ways, it's special debt. You can't discharge it in bank- bankruptcy. And you can find statistics out there about how high of a percentage the student debt is of the sort of the federal government's total asset holdings, and then also how it's growing over time. So, you know, I, I mean, that's that's something that that I think about a lot. I've got a friend who went to law school and 
has significant amounts of debt and he's never worked as a lawyer, right? He's actually a software engineer, it turns out. And so that that's one thing. I think there's a there's often a misalignment of incentives. There are certain people in sort of traditional academia that you'll talk to, professors that you'll say, you know, like you're not really preparing people to get a job and they'll say, yeah, that's not my job. My job is to teach them to, you know, expand their mind, to 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 help them think, etc., which is all all of those things are valuable and they're great things, but the truth is that the vast majority of students going to university are doing that explicitly because they want to improve their own, you know, financial standing, their own career options, et cetera. And, and to have professors or people in academia that don't have that same goal means that you basically end up with, you know, students and, and, and teachers and administration that are really not working toward the same thing. And that's a bad thing. Why is it that so many students go to a university that they regard as a trade school in some sense because they're looking for pliable skills that will give them a route to making a good living, but the university does not treat them as people that are seeking a trade school. Why does that mismatch occur? You know, I've wondered that. I think there are a couple of reasons. Some of this is sort of philosophical and historical and cultural around, you know, the, the very people that are in academia are not the same as the people who go into it to seek sort of a, you know, regular job where you apply your skills to to work for a company or whatever. They're, they're interested in theoretical research and, you know, basic science or, you know, humanities, et cetera. Again, I think all of that stuff is very valuable to society. But anyway, you've got people that have had a sort of a different goal in their life so that's what they sort of project onto others. But I think an even more important thing is that the financial incentives of the university system are not aligned with their students. Students go to university, they pay for it, and then they hope to get a job that you know makes that education pay for itself. But whether that happens or not has very little direct impact on the university's funding, right? They're, they kind of got your tuition and, well, we don't particularly care if you get a job or not. You paid us, right? How does the U.S. education system compare to that of other places in the world? Some of these problems, I think, exist in lots of places. There are places, though, where the student debt problem is not nearly such a a, a big deal. I mean, there are countries in Europe, of course, that have sort of subsidized university tuition, so you generally don't pay anything, you don't go into huge debt. And there are some complicating factors around the privatization of the student lo- federal student loan system in the US that I, I think have made this problem worse but i'm not sure that i'm not sure that this some of these fundamental problems around misalignment of incentives are significantly different in other places we've been talking about the financial problems but the financial problems tie in closely to the curriculum problems when i think about the curriculum of a computer science student the the curriculum of a computer science student is in some sense the it suits the both the academic leanings of the professors not perfectly but it suits both the academic leanings of the professors and the desire to have a skill set that makes the college student the college grad money what are the issues with the ways in which the university system teaches computer science? Well, I think some of the things you'll hear are, you know, if you go ask a software engineer, a working software engineer that went to school for CS, you'll hear some common 
common threads. And and one of those is that there's too much focus on theoretical and that comes at the expense of sort of focusing on the practical aspects of actually shipping software and, you know, actually working on a team and how does that process work? And, you know, there's a balance to be struck, right? Because the theoretical things that, that you know, occasionally I think some people complain about or that maybe self-taught developers don't get as much of an, a, a, and think aren't as important. Those things are important, right? Data structures and algorithms, an ability to actually understand the theoretical underpinnings of the software you're writing and understand computer architecture and all of those things. They, they are actually valuable to working software developers, especially in certain fields, but they tend to be the things that are focused on, depending on the school you're at, almost exclusively in university CS programs. And I've heard a lot talking to employers where they say, yeah, we hire CS grads, but the first thing we have to do is to teach them how to actually develop software or yeah, we hire CS grads, but the only reason they, you know, or I, I'm a CS grad, but the only reason I know how to write software is because I was doing it on my own before I went to college and, you know, during my time in college and, and I taught myself how to actually program. So there, again, there's a mismatch there, right? There's this, there's this, maybe this over-reliance on the theoretical uh, to the, to the detriment of some of the practical skills that are not maybe as interesting, maybe not as sort of sexy, but are the things that you really need to know to be a successful engineer. In my personal experience, there's also just a general confusion among the academia when I was in school about what the end, like both what the industry wanted and what the contemporary theoretical matters were. So, and, and the way that, that I experienced this was when I was taking computer science, we had to take an electrical engineering course. And I think you actually, you actually studied electrical engineering, right? Yeah, I did. I was a double E major in college. Right. So as a uh, computer science major, there was an electrical engineering course we had to take, and we had to learn these. You probably know what a Carnot map is, right? Yeah, I certainly do. Do you remember I, that yeah, term? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Right. So, so as a software engineer, I never used Carnot maps, and even as somebody who's a fan of of computer science theory, I don't really relish the fact that I spent weeks practicing how to resolve a Carnot map, which is like this very complex Boolean algebra structure. I mean, it gave me some insight into how transistors work, I suppose. But whenever I would take a step back and I would ask people, why on earth are we learning this? Why will this be relevant to anything I'm going to do? Why can't I go learn something that's more, even if I'm going to do something theoretical, why can't I go focus my time on cryptography or something? Why is this mandated by the computer science department? And, you know, later on, the curriculum was updated to to remove that restriction. But I felt like even in 2012, it should have been obvious that this was something that was that should not have been mandated. And it just baffled me that, as to why the curriculum was so so archaic. Yeah, that I mean, that's that's an interesting point. I, I like your example of Carnot maps because I, as an electrical engineering student, I actually focused on VLSI design, and I was more focused on analog than on digital. But but it, you know, if you're doing digital VLSI design, like understanding how to take a arbitrary truth table and turn that into logic gates, which is more or less what a Carnot map helps you do, that's actually a pretty valuable skill. But I cannot say that I have ever ever even thought of it in my career as a software engineer. So it, it, it is sort of silly, but you bring up a, you bring up something that I think is certainly a wider problem, which is that the university systems tend to move really slow and they are sort of disconnected from what's actually going on in industry. And as we all know, software and tech changes really quickly, even if it's purely from sort of a PR, like motivating students perspective, 
teaching something that was relevant 15 years ago and not something that is being used widely today, it's just not great, right? Uh, but universities don't tend to be well equipped to respond to quick changes, you know. Before we talk about Lambda School, let's talk a little bit more broadly about coding education. So assuming that, well, actually, let's not even make assumptions. Should everybody have some exposure to coding? What What's your perspective on coding as a basic skill that everybody should know, like arithmetic or English? You know, that's a really interesting question, and it's something I struggle with. I think there's been a movement, certainly in the US, probably in other countries lately, to, to sort of talk about coding as, as a basic literacy and to talk about how every kid should have some coding education, you know, maybe even starting in elementary school or in high school. To be honest, I don't know how I feel about that. And I say that as someone who started learning to code when I was a very young kid, has done it my entire life, feels like it sort of pervades my my way of thinking about the world in many ways. And yet, you know, I think about people that I know that are in my family that couldn't, they know literally nothing about code and yet they're still successful, productive, creative, you know, people doing really good things. So where, where is that balance? I'm not sure. I think increasingly some of the, the bare bones basics and being able to understand how, you know, how a computer works and how it's doing the jobs it's doing for you and, and therefore being able to use them as a creative tool is pretty valuable. But then the question becomes, you know, how, how much can you get away with, teaching somebody, how much do you need to teach somebody for that to actually be useful? Because I think what what I want to avoid is sort of making coding be just one more of those things that people feel like they're forced to learn, but are never actually going to use. You know what I mean? What should a coding curriculum look like? I think something that is really important that should motivate any coding curriculum is exciting students with the possibilities that coding gives them to create. I always tell people that, you know, especially those that are not programmers, that programming is fundamentally a creative activity in the same way that a writer uses, you know, English grammar, syntax, and spelling to create amazing, beautiful stories. Programmers do the same thing, but the tools they use instead of being English are, you know, programming languages and and, and tools. I think that should pervade any curriculum, even even for somebody who is going for a, you know, sort of, you know, has, has their mindset on a professional software engineering career. But I think it's doubly true if you're talking about teaching someone who you don't think is primarily going to be a programmer for the rest of their life. And I think that's unfortunately something that is missing in a lot of academic settings. That I concur with. Not to give a, another personalized anecdote, but when I was in school, I I would spend so much time working on side projects that I was really passionate about, and there was not really an outlet for me to do that through the school. Like, all the computer science projects we did were these things that were had almost no creative latitude. It was like, implement a linked list, or implement Huffman encoding or something, these things like that, like implement an algorithm. And I was just like, why do I not get to exude my creativity? Why do I not get to do something that's fun and exciting? So I would just spend my weekends doing that. Uh, I would spend a lot of spare time doing that. And then I would, you know, get C's and, 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 uh, and barely pass my computer science courses. And, and then, you know, the friends I had in, in college, you know, they just kind of saw me as this weird 
like a deviant person i think like you know like why why are you why are you spending your spare time on this stupid game <laughs> right. and i'd say like why are you spending all your time implementing something that exists in a library you know it just it's it, there's anyway i think we could go on for a long time about the problems of the the established education system let's talk more idealistically what is lambda school well that is a big question, but I think the way we try to sum it up is Lambda School is a computer science education that you don't pay for until and unless you get a job. But digging in a little bit more, we're nine months long and that's full-time, nine to five. If you work out the total number of hours that students spend at Lambda School, it's about 1,200 hours. So that's that's actually not too far off the total amount of time somebody spends in class in a four-year degree. I mean, class and and you know homework as well, which is encompassed in that number for us. And currently we teach five courses, full stack web development, Android, iOS, UX design, and data science with more to come, of course. And for all but UX design, I think one of the things that really sets us apart from sort of other coding schools, from boot camps, whatever, is that we actually do teach some of the the computer science theoreticals. We basically, the, the second half of the course is is in fact computer science fundamentals taught in Python and C things like data structures and algorithms and computer architecture and, you know, graph theory, et cetera. And, you know, so so that's kind of in a nutshell what Lambda is. I think often when you hear that and when you hear about our financial model, you think it kind of stops there. Oh yeah, you don't have to pay any money unless you get a job and then you pay a percentage of your income for the first two years. And, And that's certainly interesting. And we think that helps align our incentives with those of our students. But, but I think if you ask the people in Lambda school, that's not what they would say actually makes Lambda school special. I think what makes Lambda School special is the school, the experience that students have. One phenomenon of these boot camps and online schools is that they seem to condense the same amount of information, or in some cases more information, into a shorter curriculum than the four-year universities. What explains that phenomenon? Well, I think there are a couple things that are at the heart of that. One is, of course, we're not covering, you know, what what is like general education at, at university. You're you're not also taking humanities classes and you know science electives and that sort of thing. Which is not to say that we don't think those things are valuable. But again, for the average person that's really just tr- looking to start a career and to improve their economics situation, it's a little bit of a hard sell to say, well, you're going to pay thousands of dollars for these things that you and we know full well no direct impact on your success as a software developer. So that's part of it. Another part of it, of course, is that uh, it's more intense, right? We're you're in class nine to five every day, Monday through Friday for nine, for nine months. And you know, I don't I don't know about you, but when I was in college, I worked at a part time job throughout college, and that's much less feasible for a Lambda school student. Describe the economics of the Lambda school applicant or, or entrant in, in a little bit more detail. Yeah, our average student has a current salary of something like 20 or you know current income, yearly income of something like $25,000 a year. We of course get a very wide range of students from those that have just finished high school all the way up through those that are, you know, older and have already had a career and are looking to change careers or have a second one, but and so, you know, that makes me hesitate to speak in terms of averages, but you know, if I had to, the average lambda student is someone who has already worked at a job that maybe doesn't support them or their family the way that they they need or want realizes how hard it is to to do that to you know be economically successful and to support those around you and and yourself 
and is looking for something better. And often they are people who have not had another thing that we didn't really talk about with the university system is that there's an opportunity gap, right? Whether we like it or not, it's a lot harder to go to Harvard if you're from a, a, a poor family than if you're from a family where your dad and, you know, and your, your grandparents and so on went to Harvard as well. And you have help paying for it and all of that. So our students tend to be from, from backgrounds with where they've had less of that kind of opportunity. The Lambda school curriculums have a variety of paths that you can go down. You can do iOS development, Android development, web development, data engineering, Describe how Lambda School attendees choose the engineering focus that they that they end up going down. Yeah, that's a really good question. So this is actually something we're working on as a school. We want to help people choose better. Right now, we sort of rely on them choosing themselves, and and you know sometimes our students come in and they have no idea. They 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 think programming is interesting, but they don't know why they should choose web development versus Android development or, or data science versus UX design or whatever. And so this is something we're working on improving, but fundamentally I like to, I, when, when I get asked by students for advice, I say, you're going to be doing this for your career. You're going to spend a lot of your time on it. So pick something that you enjoy. You know, we're, we're not teaching anything uh, unlike a university, right? What you, if what you enjoy at university is, you know, basket weaving. Well, there's probably a class, a degree for that. I'm, I'm half joking, of course, but there are degrees that we know are not as economically lucrative as others. We, we can feel comfortable saying, you know, pick any one of these and you can do well, right? There are jobs doing these things that pay well. So pick the one that you find interesting and that fulfills you. And I think that's a pretty sound reason or, you know, a sound basis for, for making that decision. After all, I think it's fundamentally why a great number of people that are software engineers are in software engineering in the first place. It's because they they enjoy it and they, you know, loved it as a kid playing with a computer or, or whatever it is. But anyway, yeah, so that that's that's kind of what I say. Let's say I choose web development. I decide I want to learn how to make Node.js apps with React. How does my life at Lambda School proceed? What happens on an average day? How am I attending my class? And what does that class look like? And what's my homework look like? Our classes start in the morning. We run on Pacific time. They start at 8 a.m. Students spend the first hour or so on a warm-up exercise, which varies a little depending on the day and, and depending on the track, but is often a code challenge or getting together with a peer and reviewing code from the previous day can be re- reviewing pre-class materials. In, in any case, it's some kind of warm-up activity. Uh, our lesson, our lectures start at 9 a.m. Pacific and go for two hours. And this is sort of the primary live lecture for the day. Lessons at Lambda School are are live. We're an entirely online school, but we're not just using pre-recorded videos, you know, with like a way to submit questions or something. Instructors are in front of students uh, on Zoom every single day in an interactive live way. So students work through a lesson with their instructor. We we want lessons to always be very interactive. We kind of have a saying at Lambda School that, that instructors will often use with their students, which is hands-on keyboards. Meaning when you're in a lesson, you're not just watching an instructor type or just listening to them talk. You're actually writing code with them and solving problems with them. 
so that that wraps up after two hours. Students go to lunch and then they spend the afternoon working on a project uh, on their own. You might call it homework. We don't call it homework because you're still in class and you still have support from TAs and instructors. Uh, but you're working on a, an assigned project for the day that reinforces and allows you to sort of synthesize and apply the things that you learned in the morning. And then students end their day with a with a group stand up with their TA and the the other students that are in a group with their TA. Our our ratio is about one TA for every eight students, so it's a pretty small group where they can sort of you know get get questions answered, talk about how the day went. It's basically a way for our TAs to check in with with every student every day. So that sort of in a nutshell is our our uh, is a regular day in the life of a Lambda student, and that's the same you know regardless of which track they're doing. To me, this is a very tasteful and and subtle way of doing coding education. And I'm saying that as somebody that over the last four years, I've done a bunch of interviews about coding boot camps, online education, college education, self-taught people who just read books and read random blog posts and learn to code that way. It may sound like Lambda School is just a, a, a simple iteration beyond those things, but I think it's actually a synthesis of all of what we've learned about these different alternative education models. Because when I talk to people about boot camps, you know, it's it's very clear that a boot camp is a more efficient way of learning to be a software engineer than a computer science education. That's that's almost patently obvious, but you still have to go and show up. And I think we all knew that, like, we all knew that there was something wrong here. Like this, we all knew that this just does not make sense to have people commuting, to have people needing to live close to the school. We're technologists. And sometimes we just get a sense that something is wrong. Something is not as efficient as it could be. Now that said, maybe there's people who they do better with the in-person scenario. But I think really what the in-person scenario does is it has this enforcement of rigor. It gives you this schedule to adhere to. Yeah, you wake up at 7 a.m., you know, you eat some breakfast, and then you, you commute in to your school, you sit at the desk, you take the lesson in, and then you do your homework afterwards and so on. And And that's great. Those rigors are great. But what Lambda School does is it takes the importance of rigor and implements it through modern online tools. And perhaps the, the, the why now question is answered by, we now have Slack, we now have Zoom, we now have just a more general awareness of how to use online tools in, in both the from both the perspective of the people who are building Lambda School and from the perspective of the user base. I think just the general Vox Populi has gotten more acquainted with technology. What's your perspective on why this didn't come to fruition sooner? I've wondered about that myself. Before coming to Lambda, I worked at a, at a boot camp that, that was in person and you know, one of the things I learned from that that I that I still think is very true is that there is value in 
in sort of the external motivation of I'm actually supposed to be somewhere every day and there's going to be somebody checking to see if I'm actually there and I'm actually doing what I'm supposed to be. And of course, that's not a substitute for, you know, internal motivation and for a drive and a desire to do well. But we all know that even when you really want something, actually really getting down to business and spending time on it and being consistent about it is difficult. So having support with that is is pretty valuable. But making everybody come to the same place every day, especially when that actually means uprooting your life and literally moving across the country for a few months that part is not so great. And so I think we, we very much did not want to replicate that part at Lambda School. Being online more or less allows us to reach people everywhere. You know, we have students in every state in the US. We're also in the EU and have actually launched kind of a small trial with a few countries in Africa. And we just couldn't do that if we were in person. As to why it hasn't happened before, you know, I, I don't actually know. The truth is that teaching online is not trivial and there are there are problems that you have to solve and there are things about it that are different and and harder than, than teaching in person. I certainly felt that acutely the first time I tried to teach an online class at Lambda, having been very used to being in a classroom, you know, at a desk in front of a bunch of students at desks. And there are, you know, teaching techniques that don't work well online that do work well offline and vice versa. So, you know, we've had to, we've had to figure some of that out and we've had to learn how to be online teachers. But so, so I don't know, maybe that's it. Maybe it's that there's such a, there's, there's a much bigger sort of existing body of skill and knowledge about how to be an effective classroom teacher than there is about how to be an effective live online teacher. But we think it's a huge advantage. Uh, I wouldn't want to go back to, to teaching, you know, any other way. Tell me about the tooling. How does Lambda School use Slack and Zoom and these other next generation productivity tools? Yeah, so we live on Slack and Zoom. Zoom is used for live lectures, of course, but it's also used for, you know, oh, student, a student is struggling with something and they need help and they ask an instructor for help. Well, we jump on Zoom and let's talk about it and we can do screen sharing and Zoom, by the way, for for those who don't know, is a high quality video conferencing. Yeah, software. Zoom is you know it's Skype, but it actually works for huge numbers of people. So we can very easily have a, a class. Well, I shouldn't say class, but you know if we want to get the whole school together for an assembly or something like we can actually do that on Zoom. It can support seriously like a million, not a million, a thousand people in one call, which is pretty impressive, and it's it's very very solid. So we we use Zoom for that, and then Slack is is you know. Slack is interesting because we we run a whole school on Slack and we've we've actually done something that I think I wouldn't have predicted before I came to Lambda which is we have a single Slack team that is for all of our both staff and students. The company is run through the same Slack team as all the students are, which means that every employee at Lambda can talk to students anytime they want and they're just, you know, a Slack DM away. There are logistics around that that are difficult and we've built some internal tools to sort of manage Slack. But it works really, really well. So students get their, you know, even during a lecture in Zoom, students will be in a thread on Slack asking questions sort of as they come up and then the instructor can watch that. And it takes over the, you know, raise your hand and wait till the instructor calls on you. You ask your question on Slack. They will see it when they're at a good, good, you know, place to, to stop and answer it. They'll do that. Well, that's a profound improvement. Yeah, it is. It actually works really well. And the cool thing is, 
in the meantime, you know, if, if another student sees that and they've got a thought about it or they want to, you know, add on to your question or maybe they even have an answer, like they can do that. It becomes a very interactive and sort of the whole group is working together instead of it just being a instructor sort of dispensing wisdom from on high. And now I'm now I'm thinking about how in school they're always like close your laptop so you're not on Facebook all the time. And now we kind of have like the productivity version of Facebook. Cuz like why do we open Facebook during our college courses? Cuz we're bored and we want to interact with each other. But Slack Slack manages to integrate that in a in a, a productive fashion. Yeah, so you actually see this funny thing where we, instructors at Lambda School, when they start a lesson, they'll create a thread on Slack that is specifically for questions. And we say, okay, if you've got a question that you want me to answer, put it there. And then the rest of the the channel that is for that class is sort of a free for all. And if you watch it, you know, if you were, if you were to just sit in there, it, it's, it's memes and GIFs and emojis. And, you know, that may seem very chaotic and like, well, what these people are supposed to be sitting here with their laptops closed, listening to me, but we actually love it because it keeps students engaged in what they're learning. It makes them feel like they're part of a social group. That's learning all this stuff together, which I think is really powerful. And so, you know, that, I think that's something that's kind of cool and unique. There's some kind of commentary there to be had about human motivation or or human the human education process because like I just you know I whenever I do these I I don't mean this to 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 be like a, a you know like a psychological unpacking session but computer science education in in the university was was pretty alienating for me because. I really wanted to learn, like desperately wanted to learn. And and like anybody, you know, who listens to this show, they they know like like why else would I do a a podcast about software engineering as a, as kind of like a a job, right? But if you're in the computer science curriculum and the curriculum doesn't like doesn't match your learning style, it can be it can be like kind of infuriating because you're like, "Wow, I'm paying a bunch of money for this and I just feel marginalized and I feel like not catered to. And, you know, I, I know that that was basically because like I entered computer science at a time where there was an increasing and acute difference between what the state of the art of techn- of communications technology was and where the university was. And it's almost like no fault of the university that they got disrupted. This like, that just, that's just what happens. But I just remember like, Hey, I like being on Facebook. I enjoy text messaging during the class why am i prevented from doing this during the class and it's just it's just so it's kind of just an amazing lesson in technology to see those pleasurable things integrated into what you are actually doing in the educational process because i'm just thinking about it i'm like man i would have like i could i kind of want to just like drop out of my job and go to lambda school (laughs) like (laughs) do you do you accept like graduates are there is there a phd program (laughs) (laughs) we've actually talked about something along those lines nothing to announce today but like i would love it if we could if, if we could do something like that but what you bring up is where that's coming from is i got into programming because i loved it because I wanted to create things because I thought that the problem solving process was really fun. And I think that's true of a lot of software engineers, but I'm I'm not sure that's usually reflected in the, you know, sort of in the average class. And I think at Lambda school, we want to get that across, right? Like you're going to be at Lambda school for nine months, nine to five every day. It's going to be your thing for all, you know, for a good chunk of a year. And it shouldn't be drudgery. It shouldn't be misery. It shouldn't be, you have to drag yourself out of bed to do it every day. And you'd kind of dread it. Like, 
yes, of course, we need to be rigorous. And there are things that we that we teach that are difficult concepts for students to wrap their heads around. And, and there's a lot of hard work that every student has to put in to be successful. And, and I am not even sort of discounting those things. In fact, I think uh, from the outside, it's very easy to underestimate how hard it is for a Lambda student. But I don't think something being difficult and requiring commitment and hard work has to mean that it, it, it's miserable and and drudgery and you just wish you weren't there, right? You can feel like you're, you're having fun and you're learning a lot and you've got friends that are around you learning with you and supporting you and, and rooting for you and helping you. And meanwhile, you're putting in the hard work to get something done. After all, that's the process I feel like I go through every time I develop something, right? I sometimes, you know, I'm solving really, really hard problems, but if I can find the joy in that, then I'm doing really well. The curriculum lasts nine months. What happens across those nine months? Are there any like midterms or exams or milestone projects? What are the main points to illuminate in in those nine months? That's a really good question. And the answer, of course, is yes. We split our our curriculum up into units. A unit is this, this is actually going through a small transition, but a unit is four weeks, three weeks of curriculum. And then the, la- the last week of every four week unit is, is what we call a build week. And when we say that, what we mean is that you spend that week building a project and exactly what that project looks like varies depending on, you know, where you're at in the course. But in general, it tends to be a real world project, often on a cross-functional team where, you know, if you're a web developer, you might be working on the back end while I- an iOS developer is working on an iOS app client. And you build something real. And of course, it's only a week, you know, you're not, you're not going to develop something that's incredibly sophisticated and deep, but you'd be surprised at what people can come up with. Those are big milestones. Every fourth week, students are building something, working on a real team with real project management using, you know, source control and, and collaboration tools, et cetera. And the other sort of really big milestone project is students do what we call Lambda Labs at, a, at approximately the halfway point in their time at Lambda. And that is an eight week project where they're working on one thing on a cross-functional team with again, real project management and collaboration. And, And our requirement for that is it has to be something that at the end of that eight weeks can accept real users, whether they're paid customers or if it, you know, it can be a free thing, but it can't just be, Oh, look, here's this thing. And I can show you a video and put it on my portfolio, but it's not real. There has to be a public URL that your friend can go to and sign up for and sign in and actually use it. Or, you know, or the iOS app has to actually be on the app store and and anybody can download and use it. We've had some really impressive projects come out of that. Uh, it's actually maybe my favorite part of Lambda. And it's a, it's a, it's a time when students get really excited because they get to take all these skills that they've been working on and, you know, they've built some things and really buckle down for two months and work on, on a real project. That's an awesome stipulation. You know, when I, I'm trying to hire a couple of people right now, a, a couple of interns specifically. And the first thing I look for, like, I mean, I ask, I ask for resumes, but I should stop. I really should just stop doing that. I should just start saying, send me three links to things you have built, which are live because a resume, honestly, it's like, it's much less appealing than if you can show that you are actually capable of building and shipping a full stack piece of software. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of my favorite interview techniques, you know, as an, as a, interviewer for for engineers is show me something you've built and then let's talk about it 
tell me, tell me about it. You know, it, it should be something you're proud of and, and tell me about what went into building it and, you know, difficulties you encountered and, and things that you think are really clever about it. And you can learn a whole, whole lot about somebody from that uh, without ever looking at their resume. Can we just take a moment to reflect on the insanity of the midterms and final exams and high stress whiteboarding situations that software engineers and I guess just students more broadly have to go through. What mass insanity has infected (laughs) our brains that has made us believe that this extremely stressful periodic scenario that we that we thrust students and candidates into is in any way productive why why do we believe that what i mean is there some explanation for that like we're all we we all need to be prepared to go to war or something like i can imagine that kind of skill that kind of responsiveness being important in a in like a wartime scenario but i'm just like from a sociological perspective it just baffles me because because everyday work is not like that at all it's very creative yeah that's the part i don't get right in in my everyday job as a software engineer, I have never had to stand in front of a whiteboard and crank out an algorithm. And if I'm wrong, like I get, you know, not, not that interviewers are necessarily rude, but like, I feel like I have just failed and like my life is over. No, like if I screw something up or I can't figure it out, like I take a walk or I go talk to my coworker or I try again. And like, that's fine. That's a completely normal part of the process. So I'm much more interested in, can you do the things that you're going to do day to day? Can you actually like you know, build and ship software. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not concerned if you can do that under a ton of stress and pressure. I want, I want to know if you can do it in a normal environment. Cause I can't do the things I do under a ton of stress and pressure. That's not the ideal situation for anyone. And so when the people come out of Lambda school, do, do you encourage them like, Hey, there's this one other element of the software engineering world that we haven't told you about yet. It's this miserable interview process and it's not going to be like work it's not going to be like your curriculum, but you have to learn to endure this like atomic kind of zero sum battle between you and an interviewer who you have to supplicate yourself to just get ready for it. Like what when when people exit Lambda school and they're going on the job hunt, do they just enter this entire other curriculum of like learning to do whiteboarding? You know, that's actually an interesting question because you just heard me kind of, and you were also sort of railing about whiteboard interviews and sort of this high stress, high pressure thing. And and I don't think any of us at Lambda School like that paradigm. And I think, you know, a lot of people, a lot of other people don't like it either. But the truth is that our students are going to encounter that. So we do, we do work to prepare them for it. And so, yeah, students absolutely get curriculum on how to be a good whiteboard interviewer. And I almost hate that we have to do that because I feel like, well, this is not really teaching them how to be a good software engineer. It is literally teaching them how to be a good interviewer so that they can get a job as a software engineer. But the truth is like, if we're going to really set our students up to succeed, we have to live in the world that is not the one we want, want there to be. And so, yeah, we absolutely have and it is, well, it's, it's, it's actually integrated throughout the course, but it's especially intense at the end where students, you know, learn strategies for interviewing well, they get practice actually talking about their code and the things that they've done. And they absolutely do practice whiteboarding and, you know, those, those kind of hard technical interview skills. Lambda school is pretty easy to celebrate. And there is kind of a, uh, like a, a mass celebration of it happening on Twitter. It's been like a multi-month 
bacchanalia of people just talking about how much they love Lambda School, because what's not to love? But there must be some wrong turns that you as a company have made along the way, either in terms of curriculum, or maybe you did something wrong with like the way that you had the the income share agreement stuff configured. What mistakes have you made along the way, or what incorrect assumptions have you made along the way? I'm glad you brought this up. Lambda School is actually the first sort of venture back, like Silicon Valley startup that I've ever personally worked for. And, you know, we're growing really fast. I came in, I've been here a little over a year and was, I don't know, probably under employee number 15. And we're at about 100 now. And it's been really fun for me to see that grow. And, and it's, it's, of course, we all love it when, you know, we get a lot of love from people on Twitter and et, et cetera. I've, I've literally now had the experience of walking around with my Lambda t-shirt on and had a complete stranger that, and I'm not, I was not in San Francisco to be clear, uh, say, oh, you work at Lambda school and be excited about it. So that, that is really cool. But the truth is like any startup and organization full of individuals, like we're, we're not perfect, right? And we're, we've got a long way to go to get to where we want to be. And we've got a lot to learn and figure out in the meantime. And so we certainly do have those things. I, I mean, I think we have things like that that are going on now, right? Where we're probably doing things now that a year from now we'll think, ah, oh, we should, that was wrong. And we, we we can do better and we're doing better now. If you, you know, sort of if you listen to the origin story of Lambda from our CEO, I think you'll hear several of those things. And when Lambda School first started, it was the co-founders running the whole thing and one of them was teaching every day and more or less writing curriculum as he taught it and even after they sort of started to hire people, it was in many ways a very sort of chaotic like fly by the seat of our pants kind of thing, which is not to say that we weren't, you know, doing well, but it would have been hard at that time to 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 ask a Lambda employee how many students we had and have them give you an answer. Like they would have literally had to wait till the next class rolled around and just count who was there. People were not taking attendance, which seems insane to me at this point. But like the way they figured out if a student was in class is they go back and watch the recorded video of the lesson and like see if they showed up on the screen recording of Zoom, you know? And so we've improved on a lot of that. But even, you know, even on smaller things, we've got a program at Lambda called Flex, which is our version of mastery-based progression, which basically allows students to, to some degree, learn at their own pace. We want students to have the time and support they need to master everything they're learning, not just like get through it. And if you don't know this by the end of nine months, like too bad, we gave you what you wanted. No, I mean, we, we want you to actually master it. So we can say, yeah, you know what you need to know. Like now go out and get a job and we'll help you. Our first iteration of that, to be honest, both logistically and I think in some ways pedagogically was not perfect, was not great. And and that's actually something that, you know, I'm I'm literally working on today before I was talking to you is how we're going to change that, how we're going to improve that. We're, we're not getting rid of it. In fact, if anything, we're sort of doubling down on it, but, but we have a lot to think about about how can we make this the best possible experience for students and how can we make it so that they really truly do get the support and time they need to master everything without making that in any way sort of a substandard subpar experience for any of them. The second order derivative of the Twitterati excitement about Lambda School has been the excitement about income sharing agreements. And the income sharing agreement idea is that it sounds more complicated than it is. It's basically, I go to Lambda School for free. And then once I get a job, I use my high paying job to pay Lambda School some percentage of my income. So it's an income sharing agreement. But 
what is exciting about this is the fact that an entire business model can be built around abstruse sounding financial agreement. You know, an income sharing agreement sounds about as simple as a collateralized debt obligation. And not to compare an income sharing agreement to a collateralized debt obligation, which has kind of a bad reputation because of the whole housing crisis thing. To be clear, we cannot repossess your Lambda education if you fail to pay. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. (laughs) Yet. Yet, but but there may be versions of Lambda School in the future where, like, you know, I I up I like plug into the matrix, I download my education, and if I don't pay it back through an income sharing agreement, you have the right to repossess my my education. <laughs> no, but seriously, like, do you? I, I don't know how 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 uh, you know how much you're thinking like about income sharing agreements or other kind of financial instruments as ways to build practical businesses. But have you thought more laterally about how kind of incentives and agreements and contracts could be applied to to kind of, you know, bootstrap these businesses where it seems like uh, it's it's quite hard to solve? Like, I mean, basically the idea that, you know, you can solve or, or at least have a, an, an alleviation to the student debt crisis by basically taking a forward projection of somebody's salary. That's kind of profound that we can actually do that. It's like an update on, on the credit, like the credit infrastructure of the world. Yeah, so I should I should probably say up front that I'm, you know, I'm a I'm a lifelong software engineer and now an educator as well and that's certainly the part of Lambda that I'm focused on is is the education and and you know, technical details and curriculum part of Lambda, so I'm I'm not a finance person. That said, I think I think the finance part of Lambda is actually super interesting and we think every day about ways that we can apply what we're doing and and sort of the the, the fundamental business model to areas that are significantly different than what we're doing now. Nothing that I can announce or that I necessarily even want to talk about, but I certainly think this goes far beyond just teaching people to code and getting them a job as a software engineer. There are all kinds of things where more or less, if you sort of take the maxim that, that talent is evenly distributed, but that opportunity is not, this is something that can really help with that problem in lots of different areas. And to me, that's exciting, you know, and and I say that as somebody who's never been particularly interested in finance or money or, you know, any of that stuff. Like I just mostly don't care about it, but I certainly care about it when it enables people to more or less to have better lives. Right. And that's, I think that's, you know, that, that can sound a little cheesy and cliched and like every Silicon Valley startup says that they're changing the world, making people's lives better when we all know that it's not true. It's BS, but it's hard not to believe that when you work at Lambda School and, and every day we hear from students like not exaggerating at all that say, yeah, I was on the verge of homelessness and now I'm able to afford a house that my you know, daughter can have her own bedroom and we're not going to have to worry about paying the rent again. You feel pretty good about this financial instrument that you've used to help enable that, right? Let's take a step back you know, as we begin to wrap up. Just think about this product or company more abstractly. So again, coming back to the like, why does this make sense now question, the fact that we have access to Slack and Zoom, 
do seem these do seem like fundamental like core technologies to to making lambda school work and that's kind of unprecedented for technology companies because i mean we have been building companies on top of abstractions you know for a long time but you know the companies we've been built i guess we we've, we've you know companies have been built around word processors companies have been built around microsoft excel maybe this is just like that it's just kind of interesting to see these you know tools be used as core infrastructure but they're like closed source they're not like tightly integrated i guess into like as far as i know you don't have like api hooks really well wired into how Lambda School works. It's more like you literally log into Zoom and join the Zoom session. That's not this fully integrated piece of software. So you have any reflections on that kind of, I don't even know what you would call it, just decoupled tools that are nonetheless becoming core pieces of infrastructure of certain companies? Well, yeah, I'm not so sure this is completely different than, you know, every other major technological uh, advancement. If you think about computers as a whole, personal computers, for example, you know, like that enabled entire classes of business that just didn't exist before with no direct, you know, it's not like everybody who wanted to start a computer business had to call up IBM and get a some sort of specific deal. And, you know, and similarly think about something like the automobile, right, which would enables all kinds of stuff and they're just cars, right? You just get it, you just buy one and then you can get in it and drive on the road and it's, it's no big deal. So to some degree, I think it feels like that, but at the same time, it is, it is interesting how reliant we are, you know, on these enabling communications technologies fundamentally. And yeah, we, we absolutely don't have any kind of special integration. We, we do have some tools we've built up around Slack, but they're just using the public Slack API is not nothing that anybody else couldn't do. It's mostly for things like, you know, when a new course starts and we've got a bunch of new students that need to be added to our Slack, like we don't have to go invite them all manually. We have a script that'll take all their email addresses and invite them, that kind of thing. Nothing, nothing major. To be honest, I haven't put, I haven't put a lot of thought into that, but it is sort of interesting how much of our business (laughs) depends on these technologies that one, I think are in some sense unremarkable, right? We've had text chat, I mean, I've heard people say that Slack is just IRC, right? Which I think is silly, but people say that. Or, you know, Zoom, we had video chat 20 years ago, right? And, and in some ways, both of these tools are incremental improvements on what came before, but they're those incremental improvements are the very thing that make it so that they work for us, um, particularly around scale, right? Zoom can handle, like I said, like a thousand people in a single call. We can teach a class of a hundred students and, and it actually works. You couldn't do that before. Slack lets us manage the whole school, right? We've got a little under 2,000 concurrent students right now, plus all of our alumni, plus all of our staff, et cetera, on Slack. And it it actually really does enable us to communicate cohesively, even though we're spread out all all over the whole United States. And I never said it explicitly, but but Lambda's staff is also distributed. We're not, we don't work in a physical location either. We have an office in San Francisco. We have another office in, in the Salt Lake City area there are very few people that work full-time out of an office. They work from home. And I think that's actually a strategic advantage because it means that as staff, we have to build sort of processes and tools around making remote work really well, which which bleeds over into making it work really well for our students. Andrew Madsen, thanks for coming on the show. It's been really fun talking to you. Yeah, thanks so much, Jeff. It's been great to talk to you too. Wow. Wow. 